tonight on Arena. As the Clockwork Orange turns 50, we ask why did Stanley Kubrick give Beethoven and Bach the synthesizer treatment? And Shane Cullen on his iconic work on the hunger strikes, now showing at Emma. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Stanley Kubrick's tale of the psychopathic delinquent Alex Delarge, a clockwork orange, turns fifty this month. Adapted from the Anthony Burgess novel, it tells the disturbing story of Alex, a young sociopath who breaks into people's homes and violently assaults them. Finally, Alex is arrested, sent to prison, where he undergoes conversion therapy, and the court is satisfied that the therapy has worked and releases Alex back into society. Name? Alexander Delarge, sir. Sentence? 14 years, sir. Crime? Murder, sir. What exactly is the treatment here going to be, then? It's quite simple, really. I'm just going to show you some film. Go on! Do me in, you bastard cowards! <laughs> we don't want to live anyway. Not in a stinking water like this. Leave the hell alone! Don't touch it! It's a very important work of art. Violence is a very horrible thing. You felt ill this afternoon because you're getting better. I don't care about the dangers, Father. I just want to be good. I want for the rest of my life to be one act of goodness. Section there from Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange and because of the violence in the film it is almost as controversial today as it was when it was first released back in the 1971. Sometimes it's the controversy uh, the artistry of the film is overlooked because of that controversy like the innovative use of music which we just heard there Rossini's Thieving Magpie Overture. It's the music that we're concentrating on this, uh, this anniversary look back at A Clockwork Orange and with us in studio is Stephen Benedict lecturer at the National Film School Beethoven features quite a lot for mm. sure in, yeah. in, in this so we're, we're kind of looking though I suppose at a mixture of, of criminality and yeah. classical music which don't sound like <laughs> easy bedfellows uh, gang culture yeah. and high culture uh, he's turning everything on his head was it the first time this had been done? Hardly uh, Well strictly speaking no I mean if we were to go back to the very very beginning of cinema you know in the flea pits you would have a, a pianist sitting by a piano hammering away, improvising madly to the images that they're seeing on screen. Mm. And all, almost all the time, the music that they were using and drawing from was classical music. And in, in that, then, that feed, fed into the filmmakers who then started to draw on classical music for the stories. And one of the first instances of a filmmaker who actually chooses a specific piece of music comes from 1915 when, when D.W. Griffith made his notorious US Civil War epic, The Birth of a Nation. In that movie, the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, are delivered uh, or portrayed as the heroes of the South. And there's a sequence where they ride into town to rescue the, 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 the white people who are under siege. And what he does is he used specifically Wagner's The Ride of the Valkyrie. Mm. And it is to present the, the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes. Now, Kubrick was using classical music and using Beethoven, but he was not presenting Alex as a hero in any way, shape, or form. The and I suppose the other thing about the, if you think of the, the the birth of a nation situation, then using Wagner while we're in the early part of the twentieth century, Nazism has, yeah. hasn't reared its ugly head yet. But Wagner, that attachment, the association, the association with Nazism, it's supremacy, it's subject of much debate. Obviously, those who agree and those who disagree. But even in nineteen eighteen, that kind of white supremacist type of feel was there. In, okay. 
in the music of Wagner. And we've also got to remember, you know, by the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan were the third largest political party in the United States. That's something that we always seem to overlook. But the thing is, just to come back to your, mm. your initial question, Sean, um, the thing is that it was really, to, what Kubrick did was he t- took the music out of the context and helped redefine it. Now, the first instance of that that I know of for certain is from 1961, an Italian film called Acatone, directed by Pier Paolo Pasolini. And what Pasolini did was that the, the movie Acatone is set in the criminal underworld in Italy. It's a very, very tough film. And there's a sequence where a sex worker, where sex mm. worker is attacked by a number of men. And for the sequence, what Pasolini did, was he, he used Johann Sebastian Bach's The Passion of St. Matthew over the images. And in that way, he was a little bit like what Caravaggio the Renaissance painter was doing because he repeatedly mixed the sacred and the profane. And that's what Pasolini was doing with that sequence as well. And so what the funny thing is that Pasolini himself was an atheist. So he wasn't using the music in a religious sense at all. What yeah. he was doing, he was taking the religion out of the church and putting it onto the streets to impose a reading saying, look, here is a person who's usually cast out by society and she should be protected. Yeah, and, and I suppose that's, some would argue, the story that Bach was telling in yes. The Matthew Passion is exactly the same yes. story, but set in a different context. But classical music and cubic certainly um, no strangers to each other. Most people, if you ask them about the Spack Zarathustra from yeah. Richard Strauss, they say, oh, you mean the theme to 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. But I think Strauss might have some arguments around that one. Yeah. So he had done this previously and, and there was, it had its violence in that film, but there was a kind of a majestic quality to the way the music was used too. That's right. I mean, he was using it for the ape who discovers mm. that you can use the bone as a tool. Um, but, you know, so there is, an, there is an air and a degree of irony in it. But the thing was, it's not so much the, the use of the music. It's there's a particular recording of music that Kubrick then started to go towards. Mm. Because when he, shortly after he'd finished 2001, he heard an album called Switched On Bach by Wendy Carlos. And what Wendy Carlos had done was she took Bach's classical music and she ran it through a newfangled machine called the Moog synthesizer. She's one of the great pioneers of electronic music. Exactly. Yeah. And that's what she did. She effectively electrified classical music with, with um, through running it through the Moog synthesizer. If you have it, if you've, anyone's heard it, it's really spectacular. Yeah, well, let's listen to what she oh, does. Have yeah, we have the, the Sinfonia to Cantata number 29 in the Wendy Carlos version as used. In, this is used in the... In, no, no, in, no, this, no, oh, this, this is just, just what Kubrick heard. An example. This is yeah. what Kubrick heard and yeah. you can see why he was attracted to it when you hear this. Yeah, just saying, as we're listening there, that sounds like something that could be in a Stanley Kubrick movie because it's precisely <laughs> the style of, of music that he clearly, that spoke to him, the, the music of Wendy Carlos and how she treated Bach. Well, that's it. I think the, the thing about it is it's a great sense of delight when you're listening to her mm. rendering of it. It's a great sense of joy. But the thing was that attracted Kubrick to it was when he approached Wendy Carlos, 
he said, look, we're going to use Beethoven's Ode to Joy, but we're not going to use the traditional recording. And he said, but what I want you to do is I don't want this to be joyful at all. I need it to be dark. I need it to be warped. I need it to be really, really malevolent. And for me, if you listen to what Wendy Carlos then did to Beethoven, it's like there's some sort of, com- there's some sort of virus has r- is running through the computer and it's, it's corrupting yeah. the music. Yeah, so the clip that we have here starts out with a reasonably traditional version of the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth. And then we're going to drift then, in. Then it kind of, Wendy Carlos will take over and do her thing to Beethoven just like she did to Bach in that last recording. So there we go. We move from a, 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 a straightforward version of uh, the Ode to Joy of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, the final movement, into that version that Wendy Carlos composed for mm. Stanley Kubrick's yeah. uh, Clockwork Orange. Stephen Bendick speaking to us about the music in Kubrick's at Clockwork Orange. It's, I can't believe it's 50 years old this month, but it is 50 years old this month. Um, when you think of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, it has such a central part in Western European culture. Yeah. I mean, to take that piece of music and play around with it and give it that kind of slightly almost clownish treatment, but that uh, you sinister can quality hear, that a clown you can, can have. almost hear a person dancing in a clownish way to it. Mm. And you're absolutely right. I mean, Beethoven's piece, that particular piece, is such a cornerstone of of Western civilization, and I think that's one of the reasons why people were so offended. Some people were offended. Clearly, the movie the movie is very, very violent. But there are some people who are more offended by what they saw as the desecration of this piece of music, and they seem to misunderstand or seem to have overlooked a huge episode in the twentieth century, in history of the twentieth century, because the Nazis used this. Mm. It was one of Hitler's favorite pieces of music. In actual fact, he had it performed on his fifty third birthday. And and you know you have to feel sorry for a bit of whatever about Wagner and the debate with that might yeah. go on because he was dead at the time of Nazism as yeah. well. Beethoven was well gone at this stage, yeah. and Beethoven had proven himself to be a real hero of the French Revolution. He took Napoleon out as the dedicatee of his third symphony mm-hmm. because he didn't like what he did. That's right. So you know it it was a real misuse of Beethoven's music by Hitler. But then again, I mean, there's there's been, uh, it's depending on which culture or which country you're, you're in at a particular point in the 20th century, because when Germany was reunified, the reunification of mm. Germany in 1989, they played Beethoven. So it, it is, it, it is in, the, in the right hands, it's used correctly. And then it falls into the wrong hands. And I think, you know, the thing for me is what Kubrick did with that is he showed how art can be corrupted. And that's what people, some people were found offense, uh, were offended by. If I can just draw in another example, Sean, you know, when Steven Spielberg went to make Schindler's List, uh, he went one step further than Kubrick because um, there's a sequence that the, the ghetto massacre happens. And the, during the ghetto massacre, a Nazi soldier comes across a, p- a piano and starts to play. And then two soldiers stop on the door and they start to debate, what's he playing? Is that, is that Bach? Is that Mozart? And they're mm. arguing with each other. And what... What's, what Spielberg is doing there, he's actually showing that 
art can be misused to pave over horrors, right? So these these three soldiers are distracted. They're using the art to hide what they're doing. But also the thing for me there is the deeper, harder truth of that sequence is that art can be used, you know, fascism obliterates the function and the very meaning of the music because fascism does not, denies the, the art the moral value. Yeah. And yeah. that, that's the great point in, the, in, in that, in that and scene. And isn't that the whole reason? In, in fact, he's talking about in some ways in this film, we're looking at a breakdown yes. of civilization anyway. So to take one of these kind of pillar stones of Western civilization, Western culture, yeah. and do that to it, kind of making the point of the film. Precisely. I mean, that's what Anthony Burgess was also doing in, in his novel. Yeah. And so Kubrick, what people were offended by was, how can a thug, how can a, a mere hoodlum have the intelligence to understand this piece of music? And so, well, it's accessible to everyone. Everybody. You, you're bringing it quite a step further, though, here in terms of what you're saying about the music, I think, Stephen, because you're going as far as suggesting that some of the rhythms, if I'm, if I'm right. picking up what you're saying correctly here, some of the rhythms of uh, Alex DeLarge's speech even kind of have a musical quality to them. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Burgess did that in the novel because he he created this this new language called Nadzat, which is a sort of a fusion of of colloquialisms mm. and modern English and then Yiddish and there's Russian phrases in there as well. And so, what Kubrick had that great idea is of fusing these ideas of taking Wendy Carlos's score and then putting it to the music and then taking the taking the dialogue. But what he also did, Sean, which I think is really really important, and that's what separates it from so many other filmmakers who decide, hey, we're going to do the Kubrick thing, we're going to take this past classic music and set it to a violent scene is that he would he would shoot in his later films he would shoot the scene to the music he would compose the images and, and arrange the tempo of the sequence to yeah. fit the music as opposed to just throwing it in any other yeah, way because I was asking you when we came to air this evening about um, something I saw online today from Clockwork Orange and I thought was that a trailer but it's specifically a scene the William Tell overture, overture. <laughs> and, you know, the speed of that piece you know everybody knows it but there's almost a picture per note there's a cut per note it's blindingly fast and that's from the film it wasn't a trailer No well in the film he uses it for the menage a trois that Alex involves in with the two young ladies and what Kubrick did is he sped the he sp- he shot at really really high speed, so it's it all you're off to the races with these two women. That's what Alex <laughs> yeah. is doing. But you know there are I mean we've seen so many films and seen heard so many films that use classical music in a completely banal way. I mean look don't get me wrong I love Claire de Lune by Debussy and I love the Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven. But help me if I have to hear it one more time in a movie. Beethoven's Lacrimosa it's being used. In a, in a way that's so banal, it becomes an emotional trinket. Well, what do you think then of, say, for example, the way that uh, uh, in, in The Godfather, and I asked you about this before we came to it, it's, it's in The Godfather 3, because The Godfather is also 50 years old. This next year is <laughs> it's the first one, yeah. So the third film is, you, you were reminding me, is where Cavalleria Rusticana, the Kleenex ad, is what <laughs> most people remember that tune from. Yeah. They use that during that, you know, the, the opera last is happening. Ha- the last act, the last half And then half there's a huge the shootout during this beautiful music. Yeah, well, and the thing is, Coppola sets it up. He, he validates his use of it because um, Michael's son, Anthony, is an opera singer and he is partaking in a performance of Cavalier Rusticana mm. in Sicily. So, I mean, I know Coppola was sort of orchestrating or manipulating the, the story there to, to facilitate it but he, he was the only really way he could go with the with, to finish the film by bringing it back to Sicily and being operatic about it 
And uh, you've also thought of an Irish example, though, where music is used, but it's kind of, it, it's, well, if I said, if, give me the example of what Pat, what, what um, Neil Jordan did in Pat McCabe's well, yeah, novel, with this, The Butcher this, Boy. What, what, yeah, what Neil Jordan did was really, 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 really difficult. I can't emphasise how difficult it was because he was taking a popular piece of music that many, many people would be much more familiar with because it's modern. And he took Mac the Knife and used it in the opening sequence for um, the, the Butcher, Butcher Boy. Boy. He also took Mona Lisa the yeah. movie, for the for the song, and then took the Crying Game. So what he's doing is, I mean, I'm not saying he's it, it's it, what Kubrick did was easy. It was very very difficult. But what Neil Jordan set himself the task further. of taking a song that people f- consider to be their own because this is my song, mm. and then Neil Jordan sort of turns it on its head. Let's finish with um, with another piece of music then from from um, Clockwork Orange, and this is a uh, parcel, isn't it? Or That's parcel, right. Depending the, on your the funeral march choice. Yeah, so why, why this particular, what does this tell us well, about this, what Kubrick Well, this is actually the opening, he uses this in the opening and he gives, this is given the full Wendy Carlos treatment. Um, and you will hear, I think we're going to begin with the traditional mm. recording and then you're going to drift into what Wendy Carlos did. But Kubrick used it on the opening, opening credits just to introduce you to this very, very dark world. So we just get a sense of the the Wendy Carlos piece towards the the end really of that dark. that when it when it becomes that synthy quality does gives it a, a, a totally darker tone nauseating yeah you know <laughs> what then would you say in terms of in general terms well first of all in terms of Kubrick's own work yeah what did his use of music in Clockwork Orange lead to later on well then his next picture was Barry Lyndon which I actually think is his greatest achievement and then he he you know he uses Handel Saraband for the opening for mm. the the opening credits and then he also uses Schubert's uh, trio for strings beautifully and then you know Tony Scott used it and then um, I think Ridley Scott has used it and um, you know you've got. Other filmmakers like P- uh, Peter Weir, who prefers always to use pre-recorded classical music for his soundtracks as opposed to compose, mm. uh, um, uh, commissioning a new score. So you've got Kubrick continued that on with um, The Shining. And again, he returned to Wendy Carlos to use Berlioz's uh, uh, Symphony Fantastique for the openings. Boom, boom, boom. For the, you know, Jack yes. Torrance's drive up. So there are, Scorsese has then used for Shutter Island. He decided to dispense with an, a, an, uh, an original score and limit himself to pre um, to music that had already been composed. So it's a discipline that filmmakers... Yeah. sort of tie themselves into as an exercise to see whether they can actually do what Stanley did. Yeah, and, and I suppose the other thing that strikes me on the Wendy Carlos front is when you think of the music of Michael Nyman and the like, oh, and the way yeah. he, it's so yes. it's so much the next stage it's on. The, from, the next logical from, step. From, from, yeah. from Wendy Carlos. Yeah. Fascinating. Stephen Benedict speaking to us tonight about the music in Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, which turns 50 this month. Jane Willow is a Dutch folk musician who moved to Ireland to pursue music. In recent years, she has played at Vicker Street, Whelan's, Temple Bar, Tradfest and Electric Picnic and supported the likes of Glenn Hansard, The Unthanks, Keela, Nicky Bloom and Mark Geary. Her debut album is called Burn So Bright. Jane is with me in studio. Before we speak to her, let's listen to some of the title track. Oh, I'm 
must run from this Cause you burn so bright Burn so bright in me You burn so bright Burn so bright Can't you see little bit of Burn So Bright, the title track from Jane Willow's debut album and Jane Willow with me in studio right now. Um, lovely gentle quality to, to that song Burn So Bright. You were saying as we were listening to it, Jane, in fact, that that was the final song that went on to the album, the most recent song. Yeah, yeah. And what was it about that song then that, that you decided that's the title to the album? Did it, did it somehow capture what you were trying to do on the album overall? Um, I was going to title the album Let There Be Light but then it has some religious connotations so I didn't want to get in that area and I thought yeah it was my most emotional song and I really wanted to yeah, you wanted you wanted it to be the title that you gave to the album. I mentioned about um, your coming to Ireland to pursue a, a career in music. Now you had studied, I think you studied songwriting back at home in, yeah. in the Netherlands. You'd also studied. Um, you'd been at art school for a while. Yeah. What brought you specifically to Ireland? I heard Glenn, Glenn, uh, Glenn Hansard, talk about it, like that you could just go on the street and start busking, and that you could play like open mics. And that was very accessible, you know. And I was in music school, but we barely did any gigs. So for me, like moving to Ireland was like, oh yeah, I'll be I'll be gigging, I'll be doing open mics, I'll be busking. And then gradually it started turning into like opening for acts and stuff. But I still love that, you know, you can just go anywhere and play music, you know. Yeah, yeah. And and I suppose Glenn Hansard was on the programme with us recently talking about his, his pal, Mick Christopher, and, and that whole period. Now, this is a little bit before you came to Ireland. It's about 10 years ago you came here, isn't it? Yeah. But that whole period in the in the 80s and, and 90s, when busking on Grafton Street was such a big part of the culture. And it's, it's, it's continued on. Were you surprised when you came here at the way in which busking was so readily available? Is it, does that type of culture exist at all back at home? Uh, no, I remember once I went, well, not so much, well, busking doesn't happen either. But I remember once I tried to play um, music in a pub in Holland and they just told me to stop. <laughs> they were like, no, we don't do that here. Like, you know, um, so there isn't really like that thing of just grabbing your guitar and going to the pub and playing a few tunes. Like, So that must have been a, a big surprise for you to, to experience that. Do you remember those early experiences of that type of session where you just sat in with your guitar and played along? Do you remember any of those? I remember going to the cobblestone and yeah, going to bankers and all these venues and just watching people and trying to get better as I watched these people. I was wondering about that, you know, how long did you watch before you plucked up the courage to open the case of the guitar and take it out? Pretty much instantly. (laughs) So you did, you you, you were brave enough quite quickly to take out the guitar, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Well, someone egged me on a little bit, you know, Mm. like, but yeah. (laughs) Now, whatever about uh, coming to Ireland to pursue a career in music, you then, in your first, the first flat or first apartment that you lived in, was above Whelan's? Yeah, <laughs> like I wouldn't say there was much sleeping done there. <laughs> it was literally right next door. Right. Um, yeah, there wasn't 
I I really enjoyed it because I could just you know sit at the window and watch the people stumble along at night and it was just wonderful you know I just loved being there and I could just get anywhere from there you know even over the lockdown I <laughs> I used to go for walks with my housemate and we still do and we used to walk to Vicker Street or Whelan's and just look at the building and be like oh <laughs> <laughs> Wishing that something was actually happening, even though it it wasn't happening. Um, let's go to another track on the album, and and you might tell me this is a duet a little bit further down the the, the album in, in the middle of the track listing. In fact, in your house there, it it features Pat Byrne. Tell me a little bit about this song before we hear it. I had this um, lover of sorts uh, in South Dublin, and he used to play me these records of like this French singer that sounded just like Leonard Cohen. And I just kind of, I thought of Leonard when I wrote the song and I was like, if Leonard was the lover in South Dublin. Let's, let's have a listen. You can make this town look so kind now, look so simple, look so sweet. Sing to me, my love, from your dark. house there by the sea In your house there another of the tracks on Jane Willow's debut album and Jane with us in studio this evening talking about that album Burn So Bright um, Interesting it's it's there in that track Jane Pat Byrne was the other voice that we heard uh, as we mentioned going into it it's there in that track Jane it was there in, in Burn So Bright and it'll be there in, in, in Let There Be Light as well lovely string arrangements that come in underneath where did they come from and where did that idea come from? Um, well my dream was actually to record a, an album with an orchestra and then I asked for a quote and I had a heart attack um, <laughs> so but uh, then I was like, you know, a band and a string quartet would be lovely. And uh, I reached out to Joe Chibi and he basically said yes. So this is Joe Chibi uh, of the RT Concert Orchestra. Yeah. So he did he do the arrangements for you then? That was how that was how these these arrangements grew into what we hear in the album. Yeah. Yeah. Like I pretty much gave him like rough guides of what I liked and then he just did it and it's great, mm. you know. Yeah. So you, you play guitar. Um, you had studied music, as I said, back in the Netherlands. Then you went to IADT here in Dublin. Yeah. What were you studying there and how did that feed into the making of this album? Uh, I studied filmmaking and I did a bit of sound design. Um, but was it, were you concentrating on that sound side of things, really? Was that what you wanted to get involved in? Um, yeah, I wanted to be a sound designer, but I think you can only be one thing really really like you can only be good at one thing I think you know mm. you have to focus so I'm just focusing on the music for now um, and singing and all that you know? and having watched Glenn Hansard on, on YouTube and you know heard about how busking could get you a career in music in 2017 then you end up supporting Glenn Hansard kind of a full circle feel to that how did that gig come about uh, my friend Stephen James Smith reached out to me and I was working in Duns at the time and absolutely hating it. <laughs> Sorry, Duns. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I got the call and it was it was really nice. It gave me that push of like, do you know what? I'm going to start recording my own music. Like this is the thing I needed mm. to 
start doing it again. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really lovely. So and you he's, did he's lovely. <laughs> uh, you, did, you did the gig and you, you self-funded or you got friends. You did a, a, a self-funding to yeah. get your first EP out yeah, there. Yeah, I did a, a fundraiser, yeah. Yeah, and same for this album. Like, yeah, just to cover some of the costs, you know. All right. Well, listen, we'll, we'll finish up with the single from the album and that single is Let There Be Light. It struck me as I was listening to this uh, over, over the last couple of days. There's a real sense of hope in there. When was this written and what was what was the inspiration behind it? Uh, I wrote it uh, December 2018 and um, I, well, it kind of, my dad told me he was disappointed in me, which is like the worst thing anyone can ever say to you. So that kind of made me want to write a song and then I was trying to <laughs> I was starting to go like there is no light with the song and then I thought of this um hero of mine Christy Hennessy and uh, he has this song Roll Back the Clouds I think it's called and um I just used his voice and I thought Christy Hennessy is singing this to me and that made me change my way of writing the song Did um, it change your dad's mind I hope he has changed his mind about being uh, disappointed has he Yeah he like he understands that I'm so busy <laughs> with the music that I can't always be around. So I hope he's not disappointed anymore. <laughs> All right. Well, let us finish up then by listening to Let There Be Light from Jane Willow and her debut album, Burn So Bright. What really matters and what's worth letting go But I Let There Be Light from Jane Willow there and her debut album Burn So Bright and Jane will be playing at Whelan's uh, whelanslive.com for full details of that gig which is on Monday the 31st of January 2022. Hard to believe that it's 40 years since the death of 10 hunger strikers at the Mays prison during the troubles led by Bobby Sands. Republican prisoners went on hunger strike to win the right to be treated as political prisoners. These traumatic events uh, from that time have been an inspiration to many pieces of art. Terry George's Some Other Sons, Steve McQueen's Hunger and recently Lawrence McKeown's H3. But before any of those works, in 1993, artist Shane Cullen created a monumental sculptural work consisting of 96 tablet-like panels onto which the artist transcribed meticulously in paint the comms or communications of the 10 hunger strikers and its organisers, which were smuggled in and out of the H-blocks during 1981. The work represented Ireland at the 1995 Venice Biennale, but was also the subject of much controversy and condemnation, both here and abroad. The piece, Fragment sur les institutions républicaines, 4, now takes centre stage at Emma's 30th anniversary exhibition. I'm delighted to be joined in studio this evening by uh, Shane Cullen himself. What was your initial inspiration, uh, Shane, for this? Because I think it was quite a while before you actually started to make the work after the inspiration came. Yes, um, uh, thanks very much for inviting me on the show, Sean. And it's um, nice to have this opportunity to speak about the work. Um, Ten years uh, passed or elapsed before I felt really that um, I could deal with the, the sense of trauma that 
everybody felt in the early 80s, um, especially during the hunger strikes. Um, it was a very dark period in this country and um, really... Um, I didn't. I felt at the time I hadn't developed my sensibility or skills as an artist to a level at which I could tackle something like the subject of mm. the hunger strikes in a way that would be meaningful and communicate that sense to people. So, um, really, the spur was reading the accounts that Davis Beresford had written in his book Ten Men Dead and brought the whole thing vividly uh, back to me and uh, I felt the same kind of emotions I felt at the time. Um, and and uh, what, what was in Beresford's book, it was he had transcribed what the men had written but they had written them on things like bits of toilet paper or backs of cigarette papers and all of that so that initial initial transcription I suppose lost that um, original location if you like for the for the pieces themselves and the words did the words start to become much more in a sense visible? Yeah, what, what, what uh, David Beresford had done was he had he had organised the material and um, interspersed it with the kind of narrative to explain it. And um, what I did, and I had done in a previous work I did, um, was uh, remove that um, that crutch uh, of explaining to the viewer what the meaning of these texts were and left the viewer to provide that kind of meaning themselves Mm. um, rather than mediating the actual texts. Um, So was it a case that, I mean, there would have been a lot of emotion in giving the context for who the men were, their family backgrounds, things like that. That would add an emotion to those words. Were you trying to remove that from it? No, no, because they're embedded in the text. They are actually embedded in the text because the um, the, uh, the, um, whole... um, the whole reason behind the hunger strikes was to, uh, in a sense, to uh, win the uh, win over mm. people's feelings and empathies and sympathies for this protest, uh, this extreme protest that the that the prisoners undertook. What I did was I took what you described as the nar- the small scraps of paper that the prisoners had written on and the small bits of toilet paper that were painstakingly written under difficult, dark conditions, cold cells, um, and um, and they were wrapped in cling film and smuggled, uh, smuggled uh, to their wives and families um, during the visiting hours. Um, I took those small scraps of paper and I decided to claim the kind of voice of authority that um that the that the uh, was used uh, by as a rhetorical device i enlarged them and i made public these uh, these texts and uh, presented them in a way that is usually uh, usually um kept for memorialising or monumentalising and is usually, it's the mask of authority that I felt 
I had kind of successfully stolen to somehow transform these small words, these small scraps of paper with desperate writings on them and transform them into this kind of a Republican rhetorical uh, format that, um, you know, you see in the works at the time of the French Revolution, the nascent yeah, of, well, of, of, of revolutionary politics in France yeah, cause when, and when, Ireland. When the fact that the title of this work is in French tells us something about it. Where does that title actually well, come that from? That title comes from a work, a utopian work by uh, Saint-Just, who was a... Uh, who was um, the right-hand man of, um, of um, I forgot the name. Uh, and he was, he yeah, was a very important writer yeah, at the time of the French Revolution. So the Robespierre's man, Robespierre's right-hand man, and was, was, was really a, a, a revolutionary thinker, a poet who became a revolutionary thinker, and his, his writing of Fragments sur les Institutions uh, covers the, uh, is a utopian, idealized uh, idea of a society. And I, uh, I uh, took that title for the work because I also used a Badoni font that was used in the revolutionary period to texts that were. Uh, emerging at that time. Where yeah, let, let's just to, to describe to give a context for that, but only font on how the viewer sees it. The size of the panel. So you've you've all these little scraps of paper with these intimate messages and sometimes propaganda style messages within them as well. You you take them. Um, what size are the panels that we're talking about? Well, pa- each panel is eight foot by. Two and a half feet, basically, and the the text is organised in columns as it would be in a mm. newspaper or in a a broadsheet, and uh, the texts were then painstakingly drawn onto the panels by my assistant Jessica Callan, the artist Jessica Callan, who lives in County Kerry now and has her own practice. She did a huge amount of work on this project, and. Um, uh, so it was hugely labour intensive and in a way, you know, subconsciously I may have been trying to replicate the kind of difficulties or extreme conditions the prisoners were undergoing mm. for myself uh, and not to take an easy route. Yeah, and the panels, kind of, the panels, as you say, are quite about eight foot tall. So, yeah. you know, so you're writing from the very, your, your, your little, your pieces of yes. text are written from the very top and I'm stretching my hand up to yes. what would be eight foot if I were standing. Yes, indeed. So, you know, those top ones must have been quite difficult. Yeah, I to had to stand on various platforms yes. to and sort of I guess the slowly other... work my way down and then start raising the platform. Yeah, so there are 96, the there are 96 of these panels and uh, a lot of the work was done in France during the Imaginary Hollande when our president, Michael D. Higgins, was the uh, Cultural. Mm-hmm. He was our, our minister for culture. This exchange happened between France and Ireland, and um, uh, I was facilitated by uh, the director of a museum in France, Dominique Marchez, uh, who made everything possible for me to just spend ten hours a day painting this work for how many years? Uh, for five years, basically. It's a long. It's a long time to make a piece of art, isn't it? It is, but now it's uh, very distant from me. Where now I'm, <laughs> you know, I, this we're talking about the nineties when yeah. this was done. Yeah. So ninety three to ninety eight, it it felt like a voyage in a way, or you know, that I was undertaking and. Um, 
to see where I got to after that voyage, you know. Let's talk about the specifics of some of the, the comms or the communications, the messages themselves, and I suppose the characters involved here. Marcella, first of all, who is or who was Marcella? Well, Marcella is Bobby Sands himself. He took his sister's name uh, to to identify himself in the comms and um, a... Who else? There's Bick, uh, who is Brendan McFarlane. Who and what was, was Brendan the, McFarlane's position at that well, time? Well, Brendan McFarlane was the officer commanding uh, communications, um, probably organised the transfer of information inside and outside the, the prison. Um, and um, Brownie? Brownie is Jerry Adams, um, who was outside and uh, was the organiser on the outside. And um, uh, one of the things the work documents is the emergence of the importance of politics to the Republican movement and the political route that it ha- it subsequently took. Uh, with the election of Bobby, Bobby Sands, the, the piece records his election and they... The mm. the joy at the at the moment when he is elected, everybody is sure that uh, the hunger strike will end, end and that, that uh, Bobby Sands, uh, elected member of parliament, will never be allowed to die. But as we know, the whole thing became quite intractable, and uh, you know the the whole nation was convulsed by the events yeah. that and did, did you ever question you know the fact that you were taking these which were often used as propaganda it could be argued in 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 ways by by others that you were taking these words and using did you ever question that use yourself and the morality around the ethics around the use of well them? of course I did of course I did I had five years to consider all of the the the, the morality and the the the, the feelings involved mm. in, in, in doing such a thing um, but um, I made the decision to make that work in 1993 at a very dark time when there was no vision or prospect of a peace agreement we now live uh, bask in the in the in the uh, <coughs> in the age when mm. there is peace on the island and uh, there there isn't agreement and there'll never be real there'll never be agreement in the way that we all love one another but the thing is uh, nobody's killing each other over political positions at the moment and that was a huge achievement that the political route was taken what about if looking at the work now i mean 40 years later i mean even as you described the making of it i can see you're glad that you're not doing that making right at this very moment in time but does the work does it has it acquired a different set of meanings now do you think than it had back then well i think it has i mean the director of the um, of the museum of ima in dublin uh, the first director declan mcgonagall who hailed from Derry in Northern Ireland, he spoke of the work as being in the tradition of history painting. I mean, there's the... uh, It's usually representational history painting. If we think about the marriage Mm -hmm. of Aoife and Strongbow in the National Gallery, that's a history painting it records. Or the uh, the fantastic cartoons that... um, were done uh, after the Battle of Waterloo by, uh, you know, so so there is a history, there is a tradition of history painting and I feel that uh, that 
the work, the fragments falls into okay. that category. Briefly, George Floyd is one of your current um, objects of, of that you're going to make some art about. Well, um, I have made a work uh, based on a, a reaction to the what we now know was as kind of uh, was a public execution of uh, a man on the streets of uh, Minneapolis, and I spent uh, from June of last year until this June making a, a work which is a preparatory work for a larger scale work. Well, well, I'll have to cut you on it, but I'm looking forward to seeing what we get from that. Uh, from Thanks that very much, Sean. Thanks Thank for you very much this for evening, Shane. That's Shane Cullen and Shane's work, Fragments sur les Institutions Républicaines Quatre, can be seen at uh, as part of Emma's narrow gate uh, uh, of the here and now protest and conflict, its 30th anniversary exhibition and more information on Emma.ie. And that is our lot this evening here on Arena. Uh, Leah Murphy and Paula Shields were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Brickless was on sound. And tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I will talk to you tomorrow night, seven o'clock once again here on RTE Radio 1.